Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Safwan Masri, set out with a simple question. Of all the countries caught in the turmoil of the Arab Spring, how is it that Tunisia was the only country to successfully replace a long-ruling despot with a more or less functioning democracy? His new book, Tunisia, an Arab Anomaly, takes a deep dive into that question, examining Tunisia's history, politics, and crucially, some decades-old educational reforms. This is a very interesting conversation about both the Arab Spring and Tunisia's unique experience. It is the Arab Spring success story, so far at least, and Safwan Masri helps me understand why that is. Before we begin, a big thank you to everyone who's reached out to me over email and on Twitter. Please keep sending me your suggestions of people to interview and topics to cover. I also want to plug a few of my rewards for premium subscribers to the show, which includes bonus episodes, complimentary access to my daily news clips service, and my special knowledge pack of key social media accounts that all you global affairs nerds should be following. Support the show through clicking the link in the description field of the podcast episode or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And now here is my conversation with Safwan Masri. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the Arab Spring, I mean, really started in Tunisia in uh, December of 2010, uh, December 17th to be exact, uh, a fruit and vegetable vendor in a town in the interior of the country called Sidi Bouzid uh, set himself on fire after he had been... um, attacked by the police and told that he couldn't um, uh, didn't have the proper license to uh, sell his fruits and vegetables so out of desperation he set himself on fire and died about a month later on uh, but that self-emulation uh, really set off a chain reaction throughout the country um, there had been uh, growing and brewing uh, resentment against the uh, regime of Zain al-Abdin bin Ali, who had been in power since 1987. Um, you know, there was a lot of kleptocracy during his regime, a lot of oppression and uh, uh, suppression of Tunisian citizens. Um, the um, riots had started a couple of years before then um, around uh, the town of Gafsa, Uh, also in the interior of the region. The interior of the region of Tunisia had always been really detached from the coastal area, the capital Tunis, which is on the Mediterranean, 
Um, there had always been uh, great inequalities in terms of income and uh, economic uh, opportunity. Um, so this was nothing that was new. You know, it had been really growing for a while, and the um, self-immolation of Muhammad uh, Bouazizi uh, was the trigger uh, that set um, the whole country uh, basically on fire. The uh, long and the short of it is that the uh, protests uh, persisted and um, ended up with ousting the uh, uh, autocratic leader uh, Ben Ali, who uh, left the country on January 14th and found refuge in Saudi Arabia. That then kicked off a chain reaction and a domino effect elsewhere in the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, Egyptians, who had had it also with the regime of Hosni Mubarak, who had been in power for 30 years, um, um, started uh, a demonstrating in a similar manner to the way the Tunisians had done. Um, and then, um, you know, that ended up also in uh, ousting Hosni Mubarak uh, in February of 2011. Um, we can go back to the um, to what happened in Egypt because mm-hmm. that uh, democratic experience was short-lived. Um, and then, uh, you know, protests started um, taking shape in other uh, parts of the region. But it, it all started in, in Tunisia. It started in Tunisia. So, so how how did like the, the protest like manifest itself early on, and where does the name Jasmine Revolution come from? So I think you know Jasmine Revolution is in uh, the tradition of the color and the flower revolutions of Eastern Europe um, of the nineteen nineties, early nineteen nineties, late nineteen eighties. Um, jasmine is the um, official flower uh, of Tunisia, and uh, it has an interesting history because it is said to have been imported from uh, Andalusia in Spain um, during the um, uh, you know 13th, 14th century. Um, so um, the the giving it a color and a flower name to the revolution is not something that's new. Of course, um, we've had that in political. Uh, upheavals throughout the world, uh, but the na- name Jasmine uh, was given to it as a result of um, the association of the jasmine flower with uh, with Tunisia. And, and there's almost like a um, a non-threatening element to to calling a revolution after a, a flower that seems kind of uh, an inspired bit of, of strategic planning by the uh, movement organizers. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, that's a very interesting take on it. Now, I don't know if I would give credit to the movement organizers for having done that. I think it was a, a blogger um, who had uh, been reporting on the events of the revolution, and he's the one who um, supposed, supposedly coined the term Jasmine and they just uh, took off from that point. But your point um, is really very well taken because what is inspiring about Tunisia is that uh, you know if you look, if you look at things six seven years later, uh, you look at what happened in other countries that were inspired by the Jasmine Revolution, um, including Libya, Yemen, uh, Syria, and I don't need to tell uh, uh, to tell you, Mark, or the uh, listening audience uh, about what uh, the state of affairs is in those countries. Um, Tunisia is uh, the only country that has actually, whose revolution and whose Arab Spring uh, resulted in a peaceful transition to democracy. Um, And so there is something that is poetic, I think. There is something that is 
uh, inspiring about the way that uh, things took shape in Tunisia. And uh, I guess the association of the flowered jasmine with that revolution is uh, is very apt. So, so how did the uh, political parties, political forces align in Tunisia in the early days of the Jasmine Revolution that enabled the successful ouster of uh, Ben Ali, who had been president for at that point, you know, since, as you said, since 1987? Right. So, I mean, even though under the regime of Ben Ali and Habib Bourguiba before him, who was the country's first president after independence from the French in 1956, um, there was some room for political organization, uh, but not a whole lot of room. I would say, you know, more so in the case of Tunisia than in any other Arab country. But one cannot say that the Jasmine Revolution happened in an environment where there was political maturity uh, or that there were well-organized political parties. There were some political parties, you know, some were leftist, communist. Uh, the, there was an Islamist party, but that was uh, really not uh, legal um, in Tunisia. It became legal after the revolution. Uh, so it really was not, Mark, a matter of uh, political organizations and parties coming together to carry on the revolution and what happened after the revolution, but rather ordinary citizens and civil society. Um, I think the uh, impact of the uh, long history of labor union organization um, in Tunisia um, is a factor without which the revolution would not have been successful. Um, go ahead. Well, and, and and I know that you you identify this this labor uh, movement as something kind of unique to the region and having its origins as early back as as the 1920s. Is that right? Correct. Yes, the first labor movement was organized in around 1923, 24. Uh, but the existing labor organization, the Union Generale um, Tunisienne de Travail, or the the Tunisian uh, Labor Union movement, was founded in 1946. And and so it was just the um, presence, not just the presence of labor unions, but the fact that they have been uh, such uh, an important sort of feature of Tunisian civil society and, and life for, you know, almost 100 years uh, that, you know, that, that enabled this revolution to sort of proceed. Uh, I would say that is one incredibly important factor. It's not the only factor. So what I argue in my book is that it was a combination of factors that existed in Tunisia, but that are not present uh, in any other Arab country. And those are, one, the um, civil society activism vis-a-vis -vis the labor union movement. The labor union movement uh, that exists now, which was founded in 1946, became inseparable from the nationalist anti-colonial movement that was um, very present at that time and that helped lead to Tunisia's independence in 1956. So from the get-go, uh, it was a labor union uh, movement that had political dimensions associated with it. And throughout the regimes of Habib Bourguiba and Zain al-Abdin bin Ali, they could not, neither leader could crush the labor union movement. They tried to do so. Uh, there were times when they were able to bring it under contro their control, but for the most part, they were unable to bring it under their control because of the grassroots um, nature of it. And at times, actually, they used the labor union movement as an outlet for society to exercise democratic processes, if you know what I mean. Um, so take your... 
uh, issues to the union, uh, use that sort of as a venting uh, mechanism for um, ordinary citizens. So it was useful uh, to the regimes in some respects. But at the end, um, what was important about it is that it survived and it had uh, grassroots elements that really helped um, in the days of the revolution. So that is one very important factor. But there were other factors. Um, one that is incredibly considerable is the role of education. Tunisians uh, were have been uh, better educated than their Arab counterparts. And if you'd like, we can get into what I mean by better and why that was the case. But there was a long tradition of intellectual reform um, that took place in Tunisia that started in the middle of the 19th century um, and in post-colonial Tunisia, uh, Habib Bourguiba is remembered, the country's first president is remembered really for the um, education system that he put in place, which limited, among other things, it limited the uh, role of religion in curricula and textbooks, which gets us to the third factor that I argue uh, helped in the success of the Arab Spring in Tunisia, and that is the moderate role of religion in society. The country adopted the constitution in 1959 that was largely secular, far more secular than any other Arab constitution. Um, it also implemented, uh, it did not implement Sharia law uh, the way that it has been implemented in other Arab countries. Um, and as such, uh, the um, constitutionally and uh, educationally and societally, uh, religion always had a very moderate role uh, in Tunisian um, history. And I think that that was a factor that also helped moderate the uh, revolution and the aftermath of the revolution. The fourth factor, which is also related to all of these, I think, you know, there's a huge intersection among these factors, is the um, emancipation of women and the fact that women in Tunisia have always enjoyed far better rights than they have in other Arab countries. So the conditions for women had been improved since 1956, the year that the country gained independence. A new family status code was adopted by the country that gave women more rights than exist today in any other Arab country. And so the combination of um, women being active in society, in politics, um, you know, have the energy of the country that is uh, otherwise suppressed in other countries, uh, had been released, you know, for decades, um, active civil society, well-educated um, Tunisians, um, and um, a moderate role of religion and society, all of these factors, I think, coalesced to create an environment that uh, was ripe for the kind of um, transition and the kind of trajectory that we have seen Tunisia on uh, since the uh, uh, the the, uh, the Jasmine Revolution. So your your description of Bourguiba, who was the first uh, post-colonial uh, leader of, of Tunisia and led Tunisia, what, from 1956 to 1987? Um, yeah. it sort of inspires a comp uh, comparison to Ataturk in, in a way, uh, in which there was this kind of like forced, um, national identity or a national identity that was forced upon the people 
in ways that were um you know the people were, were sort of willing to accept and and your um remarks and 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 you write in your book about how the creation of this kind of curriculum around national identity uh was something that was really incredibly important in in sort of creating uh modern day tunisia and having tunisians you know feel like they are tunisians not uh anything else so the comparison with Ataturk is a very interesting one, and it's a complicated one. Uh, there are some similarities, but there are also big differences in terms of how uh, Bourguiba created the modern Tunisian state versus how Ataturk created the Turkish state. Um, so one in terms of background and context and history, the uh, the the, the uh, Turkish situation was, of course, um, dependent on the uh, history of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, let's not forget that the Ottoman Empire had been in existence for five, six hundred years uh, by the time Ataturk entered the scene um, as an army officer in uh, the early 20th century. Um, he and, young, and other um, young Turks, you know, brought about the uh, um, end of the Ottoman Empire and the uh, crafting of the modern Turkish state, which was uh, sort of given birth to in uh, 1923. The uh, background of, in terms of Tunisian history is quite different in that uh, uh, Tunisia did not have an empire to shed itself from. Um, it did not. Uh, uh, it was much more of a a continuous um, process of reform that had started in the 19th century. Um, a French colonization from 1881 to 1956. You know, by colonial histor historical standards, not a very long uh, colonial period. A, a nationalist movement that grew out of the reform movement and that was also to a large extent, a product of French colonialism. So Bourguiba, for example, um, and his um, his peers at the time uh, studied in France, studied at the Sorbonne, um, did not reject everything that was colonial. And, um, you know, they led to the country's independence from the French. Um, and so the 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 environment that Tunisia was born into was a different environment than the one that Turkey was born into. The one that Turkey was born into uh, necessitated, in the mind of Ataturk, a departure from its Arab-centered and Islamic history. So Ataturk took a, a decision uh, to turn Turkey towards the West, the North and the West, as opposed to the South and the East, away from uh, the uh, Muslim world and uh, more towards the European and Western world. And, uh, you know, overnight, for example, he replaced the Arabic alphabets with the Latin alphabets. Um, he forbade the use of the fez and, uh, for men and the hijab for women. Uh, he obliterated religion totally from the public uh, education system. In the case of Tunisia, uh, and the case of Bourguiba, um, it was really a different approach to um, to religion. It did not Tunisia did not have to shed itself from any history that was weighing um, on it the way that the Ottoman history had been weighing on um, the birth of Turkey and on Ataturk. Uh, Bourguiba also 
uh, made sure that he brought religion under the control of the state, but gave some breathing room for it. So, for example, rather than do what Ataturk did and uh, annul any kind of religious teaching in uh, schools, Morgheba allowed for one to two hours of education in religion as part of the school curriculum. Um, and so the, um, I think the, the similarities between the two in terms of bringing religion under the state control, um, uh, sort of you know, looking to build a modern nation that was more westernized than perhaps some of its neighbors, those are similarities between um, the approaches that the two um, men took to building their modern nations. But there were differences, some subtle and nuanced, some less so, um, in how they went about it. And there were differences in terms of the kind of country that it was uh, and the kind of history that it had. Uh, to what extent do you attribute uh, Tunisia's relatively ethnic and religious homogeneity, I think you, you write in your book it's something like 98% Sunni Arab, uh, to you know the fact that there haven't been the kinds of, of backlashes against the, the uh, Arab Spring as happened in, in other less uh, uh, homogeneous uh, places? So I give I give that some I mean I call so there are sort of what I call environmental factors right you know factors that help Tunisia that Tunisians locked out with okay and then there are factors that are really the result of leadership and the result of strategic decisions and those that fall into the second category are the ones that I've already discussed religion civil society education women's rights but on the first category Tunisia was helped by a number of factors including the homogeneity of its population so you don't have the um, sectarianism that has ripped apart, for example, Lebanon during its civil war that lasted for 20 years from the mid-70s to the early 1990s, or the sectarianism that is uh, splitting apart Syria um, and Iraq uh, to a very large extent. Uh, but there were other factors as well. I mean, you know, Tunisia uh, was spared the um, resource burden um, of other countries in the region. You know, it was never... Um, a rich country in resources. Uh, it's a small country, uh, sort of, you know, off to the side, you know, detached, you know, away from uh, the center of intra uh, and inter-Arab intrigue, uh, you know, away from the uh, um, Israel-Arab uh, conflict. Um, you know, it has had the same uh, borders, more or less, for hundreds of years. So there were geographic and demographic and historical elements that helped Tunisia, uh, not the least of which is a Tunisian identity that is quite unique. Um, that, you know, I argue in the book, there is something um, that is different about Tunisia in how Tunisians see themselves uh, and how their culture and their cultural identity celebrates a very long history that started with uh, the Phoenicians and, uh, you know, the Carthage, which played a very important role um, in pre-Roman times and then became the um, Roman uh, uh, capital of, uh, of Africa um, during the Roman Empire. 
Um, it's the Berber history of the indigenous Tunisian people, and of course, the Arab and Muslim uh, history. So uh, there are civilization um, and cultural factors. There's an identity. There is a homogeneity, a homogeneity in terms of the demographic. And uh, there are geographic and, uh, uh, you know, resource dearth uh, factors that I think were environmentally um, helpful to the successful transition that we have seen so far. So, so you've identified a number of, of factors that are unique to Tunisia that helped it uh, weather the, the storms and the upheavals of, of the Arab Spring. Um, but where, where are we today? How consolidated is democracy in, in Tunisia right now? It's fragile, Mark. I mean, it really is. First of all, um, how long did it take for the French Revolution to actually become, you know, the gains of the uh, revolution and for democracy to be consolidated? Uh, Isn't the joke we're still, we're still figuring it out? It's too early exactly. to tell, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, I think, you know, by most standards, um, Tunisia has done... Uh, an incredible job. So if you look at the past five or six years, uh, what has happened since the revolution? Um, as I was saying earlier in response to your question, um, it was really citizen civil society that brought about the ouster of Ben Ali. Uh, then political parties started forming and um, a constituent assembly was uh, formed. Uh, elections were uh, conducted in October of 2011, okay, so less than a year after the ouster of Ben Ali. Um, a coalition of three parties came into power. Then in 2013... And this, this coalition was, was unique. It was a secular party, a religious party, and another party that I don't know of. Absolutely. Yeah. And the leftist, uh, the leftist party. Yeah. Well, I mean, not, not yes, I mean, three parties, two secular and one religious that came together and formed what's uh, referred to as the Troika. And that was uh, incredible. Um, they shared power. Uh, for two years. And then in 2013, you had two political assassinations. The religious party was blamed for them. Uh, things were falling apart in uh, Egypt. And it's in Egypt's short experiment with democracy between 2011 and 2013 failed when the military um, sort of overthrew the um, democratically elected uh, Islamist government um, of Muslim Brotherhood. Um, the religious party in Nahda in Tunisia um, was worried about the future of Tunisia and was worried because of what happened to the Islamist party in Egypt. And so it peacefully withdrew from government and four civil society organizations uh, representing uh, labor, uh, business and, 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 and crafts, um, lawyers uh, came together and uh, saved uh, the day. Um, and they were recognized for that uh, two years later by being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, when the uh, when things were about to fall apart in 2013, the Islamist government withdrew. This quartet of uh, civil society organizations uh, uh, came in and, and, and managed the transition into a technocratic government that oversaw parliamentary and presidential elections, which took place in 2014. If we look at that period between 2011 and 2015, you had uh, the peaceful handing over of power, uh, at least on two occasions. You had um, the uh, 
ratification of a constitution which was adopted in 2014 uh, that is secular and civil. Um, you had the ushering in of the country's first democratically elected president. So I would say, you know, on all of those counts, it has been a remarkable transition into uh, democracy. Is it fragile? Absolutely. What makes it fragile? Political stability has not been achieved yet. So I was in Tunisia just a couple of weeks ago. And what is most worrisome uh, to Tunisians today is that um, there was a conciliation, reconciliation law that was just passed by parliament that gives amnesty uh, to public figures who had been associated with Ben Ali and had been accused of corruption during the Ben Ali regime. Yeah, no, the, it's, it's like this amnesty law, right? If, if you're um, associated with the, the corrupt regime, then you as a, a uh, previous official are, are given amnesty. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yes. And that, I think, you know, undermines the democratic process. It undermines the work of a very important commission that was started after the uh, revolution, the Truth and Dignity uh, Commission. Um, and it creates a lot of concern among Tunisians that uh, um, some of the remnants of the Ben Ali regime um, are uh, not only given amnesty, but that some of them um, are re-entering the political scene. So I think, you know, political stability has not been achieved yet. Uh, there are uh, concerns about the democratic process being uh, undermined. This same amnesty reconciliation law also amends the transitional justice law um, in Tunisia. So there are some legal and constitutional issues that are at risk of um, being dismantled. Uh, I remain confident and I uh, think that the experience of the past five or six years and how Tunisians came together, compromised, um, as I mentioned again, 2013 was a very, very key year uh, that highlighted the uh, uh, ability of uh, Tunisians to not allow things to crumble, but the, to come together and reach compromise um, debate issues, the power of civil society, um, I think, is not to be underestimated. So there are uh, stress um, factors. Uh, the the, the uh, consolidation uh, has not taken place yet. I don't know how long it will take, uh, but I remain confident that in the long run, um, the gains of the revolution um, will be will be saved. There are, of course, other pressures, I mean, economic pressures, uh, which really led to the Jasmine Revolution um, in the first place. Uh, the economy is sluggish. Um, debt accounts for more than half of the gross domestic product of the country. Um, the terror attacks that took place in 2015 um, adversely affected tourism, which is a mainstay of the economy. And, and one of these attacks included uh, just an attack on a beach resort. Frequented by, by European tourists. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, on, on, I mean, on the question of, of, of terrorism, I mean, I have seen it uh, written uh, in reputable sources that uh, a, a, large, a very large number of ISIS fighters in Libya are Tunisian. Uh, and that, that's sort of been one sort of, that's been frankly a destabilizer that, 
you know, as uh, democracy is taking hold in Tunisia, some of these illiberal elements are are going elsewhere to to carry on their their sort of illiberal exercises. I mean, how? I suppose the state is is not strong enough yet to to really crack down on this. Well, I think the state has been getting stronger in terms of its crackdown and its success in uh, um, in, in containing uh, that security threat. So, you know, the porous borders with Libya have become less porous. Um, the intelligence cooperation that is taking place between Tunisia and European and other partners over the past couple of years has been strengthened considerably. Um, the... Uh, uh, you know, the, the factors that led to the large export of um, ISIS fighters uh, who are from Tunisia, you know, who are Tunisians, uh, there are many factors that help explain it, including the fact that while the Islamist government was in charge between 2011 and 2013, um, there was no control over uh, preaching in mosques. And you had uh, many fundamentalists um, who... Um, sort of recruited um, openly in mosques. That's no longer the case. I mean, the, the, uh, there is much better control um, over that. Also, you had uh, thousands, tens of thousands of Islamists who had been exiled or imprisoned who were freed after the revolution. And as you uh, pointed to, uh, many of them found uh, the environment in Tunisia uh, not conducive to their thinking, you know, not... Um, in line with uh, their ideologies, so they um, uh, they took their ideologies elsewhere where they can practice them. Uh, Libya continues to be a major um, a major threat, um, but I think the security situation is far better today than it was even a couple of years ago. And 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 finally, in the coming you know weeks months, are there any? Um, indications that you are, will will look at or indicators that you will look to to suggest to you one way or another how well Tunisia is is doing on a with its its you know consolidating of its democracy. Well, I think uh, I mean that's a great question, and I think what I uh, am most interested in is looking at. Um, uh, measures and indicators that help give a clue as to whether political stability um, is uh, is taking shape, whether the democratic process is maturing. So, for example, um, I would look at what happens to the constitution, to what extent is it amended, and how is it amended. Um, I would look at um, the maturity of political parties. I mean, right now, the strongest political party is the formerly Islamist party. And I say formerly because Ennahda last year dropped the Islamist label um, from its um, description and uh, redefined itself as a party of Muslim Democrats, you know, focusing more on the economy. Um, but we have seen in other countries uh, sort of progressive Islamist uh, parties, once they get into power, uh, their agenda becomes far more Islamist. And the case in point is the AKP party of uh, mm -hmm. Erdogan in Turkey. Um, so I think the uh, maturity of political parties uh, is one thing to look at, the extent to which uh, new and younger and fresh uh, political faces enter the scene um, will be uh, very telling. Um, so 
um, I think the the um, legal, constitutional, uh, democratic environment is what I would uh, be looking at and what I would uh, uh, look for signs and. Uh, I think it's very, very important also as Tunisia seeks aid and assistance from European and uh, U.S. partners uh, that we pay close attention uh, to the consolidation of the democratic gains and that we tie our assistance to uh, ensuring that the rule of law is respected and that uh, the democratic process continues to, um, to make progress. Well, Safwan, thank you so much for your insights and, and for your book. And I recommend anyone who is interested in, in learning a little bit more about why Tunisia is, is such a unique anomaly in the Arab world to, to, to check it out. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I mean, I really appreciate it. And I think, you know, it's important also to note that the I wrote the book with a um, uh, with the, the desire to sort of share ideas about why Tunisia is so different and why it deserves the attention uh, that I think it deserves. But also, uh, the book is as much about the Arab world and what has been going wrong in the Arab world, um, and thus uh, the, the Arab anomaly, uh, sort of, um, in, in the title. But thank you, Mark. I enjoyed this. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Safwan. Thank you all for listening. And before I let you go, I do want to once again plug Humanity in Action, which is accepting applications for its summer fellowship program. I've spoken a lot about this in recent episodes and how the summer fellowship program that I did now 16 years ago changed my life forever. And I so strongly recommend you take a look at that application. You can find a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. If you have questions about it, you can feel free to email me directly. I look forward to hearing from you. Oh, and if I have any listeners out there in Stanford and Palo Alto, I will be moderating a panel at the Positive Peace Conference taking place on Stanford's campus on Halloween, October 31st. Should be a good time. I have a couple of great participants. Uh, so hit me up if you're interested in, in checking out that conference or the panel. Maybe I could talk to the uh, conference organizers, see if I can sneak you in. Anyway, thank you all. We'll see you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.